Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins-Store, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Today, we'll be discussing the very bad week that Donald Trump had, including the January 6th hearing that ended with a subpoena to the former president, Mar-a-Lago and what its status is, the Supreme Court saying no to his appeal, and new evidence that boxes were moved to the residence just before the search, and then we're gonna cover a new subject for us, and it is the exoneration of Adnan Syed, who was exonerated this week. And we're gonna talk about what happens to those who have been wrongfully convicted. As always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Before we get to the really uh, great topics that we have this week, I wanna talk about, I had a really embarrassing moment on television this week. And I just wanted to talk about what the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you, either on television or just in your job or just in your life, and how you handled it. I think our listeners would like to hear about well, that. Wait a minute. First, so, you have to tell us what happened to you. Oh, well, <laughs> okay. So um, I had, you know, Brisby sometimes joins our show and we find him adorable and loving, but he really went berserk while I was talking about the. <laughs> January 6th hearing, he was barking so loud that I could not, for the life of me, hear Mehdi Hassan speaking. And finally, Mehdi just said, and I could sort of read his lips. He said, okay, we're going to let you go take care of your dog and you can come back. And I had to literally, while I'm on television, thank God I was wearing pants. <laughs> we're all grateful for that. <laughs> I had to get up and sort of wave goodbye go put Brisby away. Um, and there was, you know, it was like, it was a big laugh, but it was sort of, and it's actually, that's probably not the most embarrassing thing. The most embarrassing thing I think I've told this group was my first time ever on television when the host of Good Morning America asked me if I planned to have children after we were talking about the tank, the M1 tank. So I think that was probably the most embarrassing. Um, I mean, Brisby's so lovable and adorable. I think people will forgive me. But so go ahead, Kim. Tell us what happened to you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I don't think I've had an on-air embarrassing thing. I think sometimes I'm quite sure that my stomach growling is audible um, as I'm on TV. I had that happen this morning. I wanted to die. <laughs> I'm sure that that's happened, and I just kept talking and pretended like it didn't. But the, I think professionally, the most embarrassing moment I had was when I was a litigator, and the people from the Boston area will um, appreciate this. I was arguing a motion uh, in court, and it's all—it was already, you know, I'm this new attorney. I'm a black woman. There aren't a lot of those in in court in Boston where I was practicing. And I was talking about uh, the residence of one of the litigants in my cases. 
And I said, yes, in Balerica, Massachusetts. Now, this is a town that is spelled B-I-L-L-E-R-I-C-A. And I read it and I said, that's Balerica. So I said Balerica. And the judge, first of all, the opposing counsel started laughing. And the judge looked at me and said, where? I mean, it was basically like, what's a ute? Like, it was that kind of moment (laughs) in the courtroom. And I lost the motion. And the town is called Bilrica. Oh, and I did not know. And, you know, the folks up in uh, Massachusetts, which I love, are very particular that their towns are pronounced correctly, even if it is not phonetically. And that was a lesson to go learn how to say, you know, I thought about it a little bit in the case last term when um, Justice Kagan, who should know better because she was at Harvard so long, kept saying Waltham. And I'm like, it's Waltham, you know, it's or so I kept saying Waltham. And I'm like, no, it's Waltham. It's Waltham. It is not Waltham. She should know, but these things are important. You Detroiters will appreciate. I had the same thing when I was trying a case in Detroit where the town, God, I hope I remember how to say this, Hamtramck. Yeah, good. Okay, so I had to learn how to say that because you don't want to say that wrong. Okay, so and what about you, other Detroiter? You know, there's so many to choose from. It's really <laughs> difficult to pick just one. On TV, the only thing that, uh, well, yeah, I'm sure I've said a lot of embarrassing things, but you guys may have had this happen to you. Despite your best efforts to remember to silence your phone, it has rung while I've been on the air. And not only has it rung, it has announced the name of the caller. <laughs> Dan, Dan Hurley is calling. Like, that's my husband's name. Like, oh, God. And then, you know, you want to well, be real cool about have... how you turn it off. So you're fumbling with it kind of off screen, but they can tell what you're doing, you right? You're frantically well, trying to. Thank goodness you have Dan's actual name and not like some sort of, you know. It didn't say Honey sweet bunny. cakes is calling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's true. You're right about that. That could, yeah, I have only his formal name, so that's very good. That's um, great. But it, 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 the workplace, I've also had one in court. The first time uh, I ever appeared in court, I was a brand new associate at my law firm, and uh, a partner came by that morning and said, hey, can you run over and put a default judgment on the record? It's really easy. You don't have to do anything. You barely have to say anything. Just take this order. You'll be unopposed. Just go up there, tell the judge why you're there, and then hand up the order and they'll sign it. Like, all right, even I can do that. That's exciting. I get to go to court. So I put on my coat and I hustled over to the courthouse and I, I got there. And then, you know, you have to wait, 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 wait. And then they call the case. And so I'm really excited and I go up there and I start speaking. I put my name on the record. And it's only then that I realize I have not yet taken off my coat. <laughs> and so as I'm standing there, I'm thinking, do I take it off now and go, hey, oh, there's, a, there's even a coat rack over there. Oh, that's where everybody has their coat. Yeah. Uh, so I finally decided to just go with it and hope the judge didn't notice that I still had my coat on. But I probably looked a little, a little ridiculous. <laughs> Did you manage to get it filed properly? I, I I actually got my default judgment. So I won my first motion and I, I try not to mention to people that it was unopposed. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Joyce? You know, um, since I live with um, a lot of children and very little soundproofing in our 1927 house, I live in pretty much constant fear of, of a person or a cat or a dog or even a chicken 
um, interfering loudly with TV. I've been pretty lucky. There was the time that one of our cats decided that um, he wanted to answer Joy Reid instead of letting me answer Joy Reid, but Joy handled it very gracefully. So, so that's been mostly more funny than embarrassing. I had an absolutely horrible moment in court, though, that I will um, relive for y'all. I had a, a case where the other side had taken an interlocutory appeal. And this is inside baseball stuff, but what that did was it meant that the district court no longer had jurisdiction. And everything that was going on in front of the district judge had to stop. So as soon as I saw the 11th Circuit note jurisdiction and grant the order, I called the judge's law clerk to confirm that our hearing that was scheduled that afternoon wouldn't take place. And the law clerk confirmed it. And I went on with my day doing other work until I got a call from the judge's secretary. And she was like, the judge is furious. Why aren't you in the courtroom? And I explained to her and she's like, he's really angry. You need to get over here. So I run across the street. The opposing lawyer, who apparently hasn't bothered to tell the judge he has no jurisdiction, is sitting there. And the judge is just on a hot streak. It, it, a judge who's no longer on the bench, who had quite a temper. Um, and he proceeds to lambast me for about 15 minutes. Like, I just can't, I just end up deciding to just stand there. And finally, he says, do you have anything to say for yourself? And I said, well, yes, judge, I do. You know, with all respect, Mr. So-and-so has taken an interlocutory appeal to Atlanta. The case is there. You don't have jurisdiction to hold this hearing. I confirmed with your chambers that we were off for this afternoon, and Mr. So-and-so is fully aware of all of these facts. Um, and it actually got even more cringy at that point when the judge became embarrassed, realized that there had been a screw-up in his chambers, but also that the lawyer on the other side had essentially lied. Um, and it's it's like the worst, most cringeworthy moment in court in my life for a lot of reasons. I'm not even sure I should have publicly relived it. But if there's any lesson in it, it is that lesson for, for young lawyers of always be honest with the court. That lawyer on the other side, all he had to do was tell the judge what the situation was. You know, there was a screw up of communication in the judge's chambers that happens but the lawyer let it go. And that was ultimately what the judge found to be very unforgivable. Well, that lawyer should be the one who was embarrassed, Joyce, not you. This week marked what was likely the final hearing of the January 6th committee, at least before the midterm elections. The committee does still plan to issue a report. And one interesting piece of news came out of the committee, and that was a subpoena for Donald Trump. Um, now, before I ask each of you anything substantive, I got to ask you this. What did you think about that video where Nancy Pelosi says she would punch Donald Trump if he came up to the Capitol? <laughs> Well, I love I her it. so I much. I knew Jill would. Are you good, Jill? I knew Jill would love it. Tell, tell I, me why. I, it, was, it was so <laughs> genuine, so authentic. We are so lucky that her daughter is a documentary maker and was there recording it. And, and I have to say, it wasn't just that comment. 
It was her entire demeanor yeah. throughout this whole yeah. thing. She was so in charge. She was so calm. She did her job of trying to get protection for the Congress. It was it was a brilliant moment. And that to me was revelatory as the president sat watching television doing nothing. She was getting the services that the Congress needed to protect themselves. And it, it was, she and Schumer were fantastic. And Steny Hoyer participated too. It was really marvelous. Everyone should see that. Yeah. And I would, I would, the only thing I would add to that, Jill, um, the, the, the footage that was shown during the hearing is that I would give props across the board because this was a moment that in real time, in time of crisis, there was leadership shown. There was bipartisan, there was bipartisan leadership shown. I'm going to give props where props are due. And in addition to Schumer and Pelosi, who were magnificent, um, absolutely, particularly Nancy Pelosi, um, we saw Mike Pence, we saw, uh, Mitch McConnell. We saw bipartisan local officials, a Democratic mayor of Washington, D.C., a Republican governor of Maryland, a Democratic mayor of Virginia, all mobilizing, talking to each other, acting immediately, doing everything they possibly could do, what the president should have been doing in real time to a, to do two things. One, protect the people inside that Capitol building and try to guard against harm, uh, physical harm. And two, make sure that the certification of election results took place as constitutionally mandated. And if they could do it in the Capitol, which they were able to do, and you saw that being prioritized by everyone. And that was a moment that was an example of what leadership should look like. Now, not everybody who was in that room continued after the fact to have that kind of leadership, unfortunately, but it was a great lesson. It was a great example to show in that moment what it could look like and how it should always look like. I wish it wasn't just her punch in the face remark, but it was also her call to the attorney general saying, well, you could tell him to get his people yeah. out of here in your law enforcement role. Yes. I love that. And too. also the the call to the Secretary of Defense that was like, if yes. this was happening at the Pentagon, what would you do? And that's exactly what you should be doing here at the Capitol. So I, I loved all of it. Yeah. I wish that we had seen this earlier, you know, to your point, Kim, that some of these folks didn't stick to their guns um, when they started thinking about their political fortunes again. I loved seeing it today. I wish that we had seen it closer in time because this is a picture of how government should work. And and it was reassuring to see it now. It would have been so much more reassuring in February or March of of 2021. Um, It would have really shown the the country this picture of Republican willingness to, to work with Democrats when the cards were down. But the moment that really touched me the most in a strange way is Nancy Pelosi on the phone with Mike Pence, where she says, don't tell anybody where you are. She has so much genuine concern for his well-being in the moment. Um, and that, I think, is the most reassuring thing to me of, of all, that we can be that that sort of a country again. Well, I, I, although you're right that there are moments there where people are showing good leadership, and, and in particular, I'll give props to to Mike Pence for what he did on that day. But maybe it's the, um, maybe I'm doing too much research on propaganda, <laughs> but I can't help but note this is Nancy Pelosi's daughter and she's a documentarian and, you know, it's edited in such a way as to flatter Nancy Pelosi. So I don't know. I thought it was a little bit of political stagecraft 
And I also really did not like the uh, I'm going to punch Donald Trump in the nose. I mean, that's that's political violence. And does he deserve it? Of course. But I didn't love it. And it, it uh, I know there's a lot of people like, oh, she's a boss and she's a badass and all that. And like, I don't love that. Be a leader. But leaders bring calm to chaos. They don't, uh, you know, um, escalate. So didn't love it. But always good to hear everybody's perspective on it. But don't you think she did show calm? Yeah, in other parts. She really never was screaming or shouting or losing control. She stayed calm and dignified throughout the whole thing. I I thought she really got the results that needed to be gotten. I mean, I get Barb's point. I, I mostly agree with Barb. I would say I would I would totally agree if it was, you know, a nice moment right now where we can be reflexive and stuff. I'm not sure what I would say if people are smashing windows and trying and like breaching the building that I'm in, yeah. knowing that yep. they want to kill me. I might say a lot of things. So I will give her a little bit of grace for that point. And and yeah. it's just important to note that was not a part of the congressional record in the hearing. That was a clip that CNN obtained. With the yeah. punch in the known comment, punch in the nose I, comment. I give her a lot of credit for all of the restraint she exercised. She could have been angry about a lot of things. Instead, she was just competent and resourceful. And the fact that, you know, ultimately when she's pushed by hearing that Trump is still thinking about coming there after the Capitol has been breached, I would have had, I think, a much stronger reaction. Um, then I'm going to punch him in the face. So I'm I'm actually glad that there was that moment of stress release and yeah. and humanity for her. And like Kim says, this was not part of the official record. I, I might have been a little bit more critical had it been included there. All right. Well, why don't we move on from there? Um, Kim, get us started with you know, what new evidence did we learn this week? Yeah, so what it was, it wasn't shocking, but it was the details that really showed how Donald Trump had a continuous, premeditated, intentional plan to deny the results of the election if he lost. He had this plan even before the election took place. He carried it through perpetuating an election lie even when he knew it was a lie, and it was clear from a lot of testimony that he knew it was a lie. One of my favorite pieces of evidence was when Cassidy Hutchinson said uh, that Donald Trump, after the election, saw was watching Joe Biden on television and said, "You know, I don't want, I don't want anyone to know that I lost to this guy. I don't, I don't want any. It's embarrassing. I don't want anybody to know that I lost." He knew that he lost, and there was evidence that he knew that he lost, and he continued to perpetuate lies even when told that he was not. Bill Barr told him that there was nothing wrong with the Dominion voting machines, and then he goes and publicly says that the Dominion voting machines were changing votes for him to vote for Biden. He knew that there was no vote dump in Detroit. Then he goes and publicly says that there was this big vote dump with a, you know, a boxes of, of votes being dumped off in Detroit. He was told by people within his own circle all along the way what was happening. And then he insisted on lying. And then he was the one who instigated, as we could see Nancy Pelosi saying in real time, instigating, sending the people to the Capitol. He knew that they were armed. He wanted to go himself. He put the Secret Service preparing themselves to be in danger to try to get him to the Capitol before finally saying that it wasn't going to happen. So it was it was just, it wasn't like the new evidence was something we didn't 
already have an idea about, but it filled in so much more evidence that made the picture that the committee painted so much clearer. Yeah, I thought that they did uh, a good job of of kind of pulling things together to explain the, the premeditation that I think is necessary to prove a conspiracy. You know, like one thing, I guess the pieces have always been kind of out there, but it finally crystallized for me something that I had always been curious about, which is why Donald Trump was disparaging vote by mail before the election. Um, You know, seniors and Republicans like voting by mail, especially during a pandemic. And so it seemed odd to me that he was disparaging that method of voting. But then we see, um, you know, Bannon and Stone say, here's what he's going to do. He's going to say he won the election. He's just going to say it. He's going to lose. But then he's going to say he won. And that email from Tom Fitton of Judicial Watch that said, here's what you do. You say, I won, and um, only the ballots cast on election day um, met the deadline, uh, and anything else was invalid. Because he knew what would happen is that his supporters would vote in person, those would be counted on election day, and then the mail ballots, which would be largely Democratic, would trickle in later, and so we would have exactly what happened, this flip that it looked like Trump is leading and then suddenly it flipped and now he's not leading anymore. And he could say, look how suspicious that is. So I thought that was so interesting because it tied together how that was all part of the plan and part of the conspiracy. Joyce, let me ask you, um, I know one of the things that the committee was trying to accomplish was a closing argument of sorts. Do you think their summation of the evidence was effective or important? You know, it's such a good question. Um, We've all sat through all of these hearings. And I think, and I wonder what y'all think about this, but at least in my judgment, the committee outperformed expectations for what they could achieve. I think they may have outperformed yeah. their own expectations, right? They, they brought forward new evidence. They gave it to us in an understandable form. They gave us timelines. But as a summation, I felt like this last hearing was sort of preaching to the choir, the people that were listening to the to the hearing already understood the message. But, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a sermon that I really liked. What I was left wondering is, how do you take this message and get it out to the people who haven't heard it, the people who haven't sat through all of the hearings, the people who just need a short summary piece? Because I don't think that those people get reached by the big written report when it comes out. If you haven't watched the hearings, it's unlikely that you'll read the full report. So I feel like the next frontier is to take this this final hearing and to maybe cut it up into, I don't know, video clips or discussion group pieces and figure out how to effectively get it out to people and, and maybe target people with the kinds of arguments that will make the most sense um, to them. Because the, the thing that really got to me in this last hearing was watching the overlay of of the timeline of the mob, the video of the mob against the calmness of the leadership. You know, it's the timelines that have already, have always been compelling to me. I feel like that's the part of their closing argument that they need to push out to the public very aggressively. We all know Democrats don't always do a great job of messaging, but I think that this is their moment and and they they need to shine. I think given the help they've had in making these presentations as effective as they have, that they will probably get that kind of help in making the message reach a larger audience. And I agree with you, it needs to, but 
I don't think we're going to ever change the minds of the true Trumpers. But what could happen is that independents and moderate Republicans will accept the facts as summarized here. And that's the best you can hope for, because you're right, to a large extent, they, the people watching were the people who already believe the truth of what they have presented over the past uh, many other hearings. And so it's really that small, limited group, but that can make the difference in the election outcome. It could change the midterms. So I hope they, in the next three weeks, get it out. That's really all that's left. That's a really interesting perspective that you both have, because until I just heard you say that, one thing I had been thinking of is, because I think a lot of commentators have said, you know, that nothing much happened. This was kind of, you know, boring. They kind of went over some of the same old stuff. We all know all that already. And I think that there's a, a presumption that the whole world watches it as closely as we do. You know, like I know all of us have our large bulletin boards with photos tacked up and uh, blueprints and, you know, strings attached to various parties and uh, conspiracy charts. But, you know, most members of the public probably don't follow it that closely. And so I thought this was sort of a chance for them to kind of recap and summarize. But Joyce, you mentioned a good point, which is, so those people probably aren't watching anyway. And so how do you reach them? And I, I think one, um, you know, risk is that this ends up, if they write some big report like the 9-11 Commission report, it ends up with the same fate as the Mueller report, which is it's so long that a lot of ordinary people aren't going to read it if it's hundreds of pages long. Um, and... Uh, is there some better way to reach people? And as you say, maybe short videos that you put out on social media uh, to really take it to the people. So that's that's a really interesting perspective, uh, especially as the midterms approach, making sure people understand what was said there. I think it's Very a point for, for you and your book, Barb, right? If, peop if people are used to getting their misinformation on Facebook, then maybe we have to replicate that same way that they're used to absorbing information when we're trying to get them to see the truth. It, it reminds me a little bit of libel law, where if you libel or defame somebody, you've got to actually correct that defamation using the same sort of um, format or media that you use to defame somebody. If you in the newspaper said something that's mm -hmm. defamatory, then you have to go back in the newspaper to correct it. Maybe there's a little bit of intuition there that could be helpful in the disinformation sphere. Yeah, very good. I'm all for crowdsourcing my book, by the way. Ideas, <laughs> uh, I'll give you a lovely note in the acknowledgement section. We are here for you, girl. <laughs> um, Jill, what do you think about this um, move at the end of the hearing to vote um, to subpoena Trump? This week, uh, does does the timing seem odd? I mean, it's over, and now they're subpoenaing Trump. I mean, I guess if he if he responds, they'll have another hearing. But um, what what's your take on that? Well, first of all, I, you can view this as an opportunity for him to present his case, and that is something that seems very fair to me. That they, the committee can say we gave him the opportunity to hold the stage and to make his presentation. He elected not to, but we gave him that opportunity. Would it have been better sooner? Yes, for some reasons. On the other hand, I think you can make the argument that they needed to get all of their facts together to see whether his testimony would be helpful um, and whether they had enough to question him on and so that they had to wait till the end before taking such a dramatic step. Um, and, and I think that 
you could argue it either way, that they should have done it sooner, but that they had to wait until longer is an equal, um, equally valid point of view. In terms of whether he will ever respond, I mean, okay, he has responded with a very long letter um, that does not address whether he will or won't appear, but just simply says the election was stolen. I mean, he's doubling down on the lies that have brought us to this point. And I think, given his personality, that he will want to answer this, that he'll want to appear. I think his lawyers will say, I am going to restrain you physically and prevent that from happening because nothing good can possibly come of your testifying in terms of the future of anything to do with you, lawsuits or a potential future election. Um, but I think really, and my husband, I think, said it best. He said, of course he's going to testify. He's arrogant. He thinks he's <laughs> his own best defender. And he's going to want to get out there, and especially if they let him do it in a public hearing. If, he, if they say, no, you have to come and talk to us, he'll say, no, I'm not. But if you give him an audience of that magnitude, I think he might just do it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't it seems like so. Bob Mueller all over again, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I want to come talk. He'll do it. Let He'll me. fight it the same way he's fighting the the Mar-a-Lago case. I, I don't think there's any chance in the world you're going to get him under oath on anything. Yeah, fake cooperation, cooperation, cooperation. Well, he's been very good at talking publicly and lying and not doing it under oath where there are consequences for lying. So, yeah. We, yeah. You know, but I it can see him insisting on having the microphone live to talk to the country. And there is no way, if I'm the <laughs> committee, that I'm going to let that happen. I think he's going to, you know, set unreasonable demands. And then when they won't meet them, he'll, he'll back out. Yeah. Well, um, Kim, let me turn to a different aspect of this. You know, Liz Cheney now, uh, this is the first hearing since she lost her reelection bid uh, in her primary uh, no doubt her split from the Trump faithful and her role in these hearings has likely cost her her seat in Congress. Do you think she has any political career in front of her? She's kind of distinguished herself a little bit here, but she's she's in an odd place, right? A, a very conservative politician who's opposed to Trump. I mean, I'm not an, enough of an expert in whatever it is that the Republican Party is doing to really um, say what future she has because she is a Republican and that's something she um, that's important to her. Um, she ought to be a rock star within that party. Um, she has... Um, she has wonderful integrity. She is a hard worker. She does... You can tell uh, that she is serious about the work based on her performance, not perf I don't want to call it a performance, but based on her work on this committee and what we've seen. But right now, this is a party of Trump. And anyone who dares to not be in lockstep with him um, forfeits, in, in many cases, forfeits their political future. So yes, Liz Cheney will be leading, leaving the Congress. But I don't know what space is open for her after this? And this is an open. This is an interesting question. I'm going to be looking. What happens to? It's not just her. What happens to the Liz Cheney's, the Larry Hogan's, the Charlie Bakers, the the people who made the decision to say, "I 
love the Republican Party. I, I want limited government. I, I want the, the principles of, of federalism. I want all these things that, to me, the Republican Party stood for. But suddenly it's been hijacked by someone who helped support an insurrection. And I don't believe in that. I also believe in democracy. Um, so that's a great question. The answer is, I just don't know. Yeah, she's a little bit on an island. Maybe she'll start her own podcast. <laughs> Hey, you know, I think that we could even make space for her to join us as a guest for one episode. We don't really do guests, but I might be willing to make an exception. The mic is open to her. <laughs> um, well, Joyce, let's talk about what happens next year. It seems now that the ball is really in DOJ's court. What, what do you think is the likelihood that they come through with criminal charges against Donald Trump for, for the January 6th issues? Yeah, I mean, I think that we need to um, be very clear about this. Do we want to see Trump charged so that there will be accountability? Yes. Is there a lot of evidence in the public square that suggests that he was involved perhaps even in a leadership role um, with the way the violence fanned out on January 6th? Yes, there is that suggestion. But it is very difficult to assess this unless you're inside of the Justice Department looking at all of the evidence, um, familiar with the grand jury proceedings, because what we don't know about could also be very difficult issues that DOJ is struggling with. For one thing, DOJ has to prove every technical legal element of any crime that they charge. It's not enough to say his conduct was despicable, he's a bad man, he tried to take down democracy to hold on to power. All of those things are true. All of those things should matter to voters. Whether they constitute a federal crime is an entirely different question, and DOJ will have to evaluate its evidence to make sure that it can prove all of the acts, that it can prove all of the states of minds, that it can prove other circumstances that the law requires, and that there are no legal defenses that Trump has that would mean that they either couldn't obtain a, conv a, a conviction or couldn't sustain a conviction. But I increasingly believe that if the evidence is there, DOJ will end up charging Trump, whether that's for seditious conspiracy, whether it's a sort of a more staid um, 18 USC 371 conspiracy to interfere with government. I don't think that that's yet clear. I mean, I'm just honestly not sure that we've seen the direct evidence linking Trump to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. And if, if I was sitting at DOJ, I would want to know more about that definitively. But there still might be a charge that he has um, interfered with government functions. You know, the January 6th committee gave DOJ a real boost. They surfaced some new witnesses, surfaced some evidence that DOJ, for whatever reason, um, didn't seem to be far enough along with. So I think that that puts some momentum behind them. And, and I hate to be a betting person on this, which is why I'm going to waffle and say, I, I just think that we have to trust them to do the right thing. And I do. But the reality here is that if the evidence is there, then they need to go. I understand and I appreciate all of the concerns about not wanting to be a banana republic, not wanting to be a country that engages in political prosecutions. But Trump's conduct is so far out of the ordinary. It is so outrageous. It is so offensive to democracy that if DOJ can hold him accountable, they must. But I am also willing to be patient 
and to let them do it in their own time, because I think it's far more important here to do it right than it is to do it fast, although DOJ has to be very cognizant of the deadlines. I mean, you know, the clock's ticking. We're down to two years in the Biden administration. If they're going to indict, they have to do it at a point where that conviction can be final while they're still in office. Yeah, January 2025 may sound like a long ways away, but by the time you charge the case and then all the motions and all the discovery that would happen in the case, you could find yourself uh, into the next administration when a new president could simply pardon Donald Trump and make the whole thing go away. So there is a little bit of a race on. I agree with you that um, I don't think they made the link yet with regard to uh, Trump and the seditious conspiracy to physically attack the Capitol as a uh, you know, pre-planned attack. There's lots of little circumstantial evidence, but they do have cooperation from three Oath Keepers who've been charged with seditious conspiracies. So the, the possibility is there that that will happen. They also have access to their phones. We know there's some links to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, to Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. So if they can make that out, I think that's like a killer case if they can put that link together. But I, I agree with you that even if all you can prove is conspiracy to defraud the United States, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, you know, using fraud, uh, claims of a false uh, election um, to interfere with the peaceful transition of power, just pressuring Mike Pence to reject the votes from those swing states where they brought in the alternate slates of electors. I think that's a viable theory. Now, you know, whether they can put uh, sufficient evidence of intent on Trump and all the defenses is, you know, an, another thing, but it seems like it's at least a very strong theory based on the evidence we've seen so far. All right, let me ask Jill one final question. Um, do you think the committee has some unfinished business left? I mean, they've got these uh, witnesses hanging out there who kind of snubbed them, right? Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, and others. Um, Kevin McCarthy, do, do you think they need to do more to protect their institutional power to subpoena witnesses? I mean, if you can just blow it off, why won't everybody do that in the future? I think it is a very important point. I'm glad you raised this. Um, and there are witnesses when you say unfinished business, you know, the vice president comes to mind as someone who maybe should have been subpoenaed. Um, in terms of the ones who have been and have ignored it, you know, the argument that there is an inherent power for the Congress to enforce its own subpoenas has not been used in this entire series of events. And you're right, in a highly divided country, as unfortunately we are now, if they don't have the power, they have no oversight left. And it's not just the witnesses like Meadows and Jim Jordan in connection with January 6th and all the other uh, tentacles of January 6th. I, I hate that we're calling it January 6th because there's so much more to the attempt to overturn the election than just the, the riot on that day. Um, but it's things like when Congress wanted to have a testimony about Homeland Security and the family separation, and they blew it off. They didn't come in. They wouldn't come in even for normal oversight that has never been challenged, where Congress needs the information to pass laws that will help solve problems. So I think Congress's power is being whittled away um, and they do need to do something. So the answer to your question is yes, I think they have to do something. Joyce, have you been studying up for your Helix quiz? 
You know, I passed my Helix quiz, and I have the mattress to prove it and the good sleep to go along with it. To find your perfect mattress, take Helix's two-minute sleep quiz. More bad news for Trump, thank God. Um, For starters, though, this week, Trump tried to do an end run around the 11th Circuit and get the Supreme Court to intervene in the Mar-a-Lago case. And the court ruled on Thursday, midway through the January 6th hearing, which I've got to believe was not purely coincidental. I mean, I think even the nine folks on the Supreme Court can throw a little bit of shade sometimes, and and I think that they did on this occasion. But Barb, let's start with the Supreme Court. How did they rule and what's going to happen next? Well, in a a delicious (laughs) one-sentence Ruling. <laughs> 35 words. I yeah. counted. <laughs> and, and that includes words saying Clarence Thomas referred it to the whole court. That takes up like, you know, <laughs> 10 of the words right there. Uh, just, you know, motion denied. So they don't give a lot of reason for it, but it's such a succinct and quick and decisive victory that I think it speaks volumes um, in its brevity. You know, there's no waffling. There's no, oh, gee, this was a hard question. Um, no one expressed dissent, one sentence, we reject this. And just to remind people what was at stake here, um, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals had um, granted this stay from Judge Cannon's order appointing the special master to carve out the special master's review of those hundred or so classified documents, finding that, you know, whether Trump declassified them or not is simply a red herring. You know, by definition, classified documents are government documents. There's nothing about declassifying them that could have changed their content or could have transformed them from government documents to personal documents. There's just no claim Trump can possibly have to any sort of privilege over these documents. And so they carved that out. They left other issues uh, on the table uh, and and, that, and they'll work through that in the, the substantive appeal on the merits of other issues. But they they also said, you know, and the special master doesn't have to review this and the Justice Department can just go do their investigation to mitigate losses in the intelligence community and to conduct its criminal investigation. And so it was that piece that Donald Trump's lawyers had appealed uh, and then the Supreme Court, uh, you know, they they got the Justice Department's response on Tuesday uh, at 5 p.m. and by Thursday afternoon, had rejected it. So I think that's a resounding rejection. It really gives, it's it's really nice. You know, we shouldn't um, celebrate when the court just does something that is so obviously correct. Uh, but in this day and age, I think we do. And it was really a great relief to see the court rule this way. Uh, you know, it was a good day for the rule of law. You know, this made me think of the cartoon umpire in a baseball game who sort of jerks his thumb and says, you're out, right? <laughs> and I mean, that's pretty much what they said, said to Trump. Um, So this case, as Barb points out, though, is now back at the 11th Circuit. And to carry the metaphor further, uh, a little bit of inside baseball local procedure in the 11th Circuit, you know, we've had this ruling that got a lot of acclaim on the 100 classified documents from a motions panel at the 11th Circuit. But this case is now being heard by an entirely different panel of 11th Circuit judges three judges drawn randomly by the clerk of the court. They may view the issues differently. The 11th Circuit rules explicitly say that they're not bound by the rulings from a motions panel. And if they view the issues differently, they can change them. I don't think that they that they will. I think that the motions panel got it right. I think that the issues here very clearly favor the government's point of view. But I think that we should all watch this 11th Circuit proceeding. 
um, and, and we'll know the answers when we get them. The case will be ripe for decision by the 11th Circuit sometime after the briefing schedule is completed and the court can hear early argument. So I'm thinking possibly December, although the 11th Circuit could hear oral argument and then delay for a while before it issues an opinion. But it seems like in this case, they'll feel obligated to follow the Supreme Court and act pretty quickly. So that's the stuff that's going on uh, in litigation. But it, that really takes us back to the reason that all of this appellate litigation is going on, which is DOJ's criminal investigation. New evidence this week, Jill, or at least new to us, the public. One suspects DOJ might have already known about the news that we're just learning from the reporting. But the new evidence involves reporting about boxes of documents that were moved at Mar-a-Lago. How good do you think this evidence is, and what does it do for DOJ's case? I think the evidence is really good. It's apparently verified by not just testimony of the employee, but by video showing the employee actually moving the documents. And you really have an unchallenged <laughs> way of Conflagration. It's pronounced conflagration. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just have to interrupt to say, Joyce, thank you for using a sports analogy that I actually understood. Well, you know, <laughs> if it's coming from me, it was pretty bare bones. <laughs> I don't always get the sports ones. Anyway, um, I do think it's very good uh, evidence that shows Donald Trump actually ordered an employee to take documents from his storage area and put them in the residence at Mar-a-Lago right before the search warrant happened, before the search happened. And that's really good evidence of his mental intent and of his knowledge that he was having documents he shouldn't have had. And I think that it will push the Department of Justice even more firmly into the category of, we don't like doing this, but we have no choice. You've rubbed our face in it. You've done everything. And you know, there's precedent for this kind of case. Sandy Berger, who was a Clinton um, high-level person, got indicted for this. And I just think Department of Justice is going to have to take this seriously and is going to have to act on it. Doesn't yeah, I mean think, it's the only thing that they're going to act on, but this case for sure. I think that's the perfect way to frame this in terms of whether they want to or not. You know, it's at some point he's done too much. And Kim, that's what I wanted to ask you about. You have such good perspective on this with your journalist hat. You know, we've talked a lot about the fact that DOJ doesn't prosecute these cases in the absence of plus factors. Um, Jill, of course, flagged Sandy Berger where there was a plus factor. He tried to uh, destroy some of the documents that he took out of the archives in his socks, right? Um, and did get prosecuted. Uh, but Trump, this case, all of the obstruction. And I remember when we read the search warrant for the first time and it listed obstruction of justice as, what, as one of the three crimes, really wondering what that was about. And with this week's news, that comes full cycle, right? We know that DOJ was aware that after Trump had been told that the government wanted its classified documents back, that he had this former military aide who is now in his employ shuffling boxes of documents yeah. around. It's, it's incredible. Do you think that with all of this obstruction, are we at the point where DOJ, as, as Jill so artfully says, has to prosecute whether it wants to or not? 
I think that the plus factors are there. I mean, I think um, one thing that I thought about was uh, General David Petraeus, who faced criminal prosecution for sharing classified documents to a, a, a documentarian. Um, but it wasn't just that he shared it, it's that he lied about it. That's what got him prosecuted because he was trying to cover up the relationship that he had uh, with his documentarian. And I think here you have the, just about all of the plus factors are met. I mean, plus factors includes um, things like what was the intent? Was there malintent in actually taking or keeping the information? And it seems, based on reporting anyway, that Donald Trump knew he wasn't supposed to have it. And once they found he found out that people were looking for it, that the government authorities were looking for it, he someone allegedly moved it to Mar-a-Lago. Um, oh, come on, Kim. He just wanted the love letters from Kim jong Right. That's all. I'm sure that's what it was. Um, whether there was clear knowledge or understanding that the documents were classified, of course, they were marked as such. I mean, he doesn't read much, but he could see that. Um, and, and one of the biggest factors is, was there deception? Was there deceit? Um, and it seemed that he it was very untruthful about it. You know, he even had his lawyer certify that all of the documents had been produced allegedly, reportedly, knowing that they hadn't been. So I think if they could prosecute David Petraeus, they can certainly prosecute Donald Trump. What do you think, Barbara? You persuaded? Would you make the call to prosecute? Yeah. You know, there are always things that may not be known to the public. There may be additional factors that are in some way exonerating that we're not aware of. But remember what Jim Comey said back when he was explaining why the FBI was recommending against charges for Hillary Clinton. What he said is at the time, they had looked at every case ever charged for mishandling classified documents. And as Kim said, what they said is they need some plus factor. So um, you could charge somebody for gross, being grossly negligent in mishandling classified documents. But in every case ever charged, there has been some plus factor. And he lists those as willful violation, um, stored in such a way as to risk exposure, disloyalty to the United States, or obstruction of justice. And I think Trump hits at least three of those. <laughs> um, you only need one. And I think that if they don't charge him, it makes it really difficult for them to turn around and charge other people like reality winner and government contractors who uh, mishandle classified information. If you let the president off, how do you ever have uh, the credibility to charge other people? So I, I kind of feel like Trump's almost daring them to charge him. And, and I think that if things uh, are the way they appear to be, I think they do have to charge him. You know, I, I think it becomes unavoidable, and, and I always am reminded of this case that was that was prosecuted, sentenced earlier this year, a case out of Hawaii with a woman who had been um, an employee in one of the military commands that was based in Hawaii, and at some point she has documents and they're in a hotel room, and there's maybe some indication she pleads guilty to an information, maybe just a sliver of implication that there's nothing innocent about the fact that these doctors are carelessly stored in her hotel room while there are a lot of people milling about in and out, maybe for a, a dinner party type setting. But she's prosecuted. She goes to prison for three months. She goes to prison for a lot less conduct than what the former president um, committed here. And I think if you're going to be consistent that case is a really, really big consistency factor for anybody who wants to look it up. The defendant in that name, her case was, I don't know if I'll say it right, Lavarello is how I would pronounce it. But it's so close in time. The conduct is so similar. 
um, that I just don't see how, how they avoid it. What do you think, Jill? Are, are Barb and I being a little bit too aggressive, old prosecutors chomping at the bit? No way. Um, I, I sort of already tipped my hand in my answer to your first question, which is absolutely, this is low-hanging fruit. It needs to be a point of accountability, not just because he should be held accountable, but because it would prevent anyone in the future being held accountable if he isn't, because there are all these factors. He said they're mine. He knew they weren't his. And so there's there's just no way around this. And as we've said, it doesn't matter whether they were classified or not. The Presidential Records Act makes the possession illegal anyway, even if they weren't classified. But more importantly, the risk to the country, well, even if he had magically waved his wand and said abracadabra, they're declassified, the content of them was still posing a risk to the country. It posed a risk to our national security. It doesn't matter whether they're labeled classified or not. The content didn't change by the classification change. So it seems to me that when you have classified documents that risk our national security, you must go ahead and there's just no way out of it. I don't care how much Merrick Garland thinks that it would upset the country and cause a stir from the right. He has to do it. It's the only way to hold accountable future miscreants. Okay, well, last question. If we think that there's going to be an indictment here, what about timing? Do we have a sisters-in-law betting pool on what month this is going to happen in? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think? Nobody wants to go on record here. I'll take January of 2023. Oh. I'm going to go December. And I'm not a betting person, but... <laughs> I think the sooner the better. I'll bet you a Chicago hot dog just so we can get some enjoyment out of the Trump presidency. Okay, I will personally deliver it to you. (laughs) I'll take February just to uh, hedge my bets, but uh, December, January actually sounds pretty good. What do you think, Kim? I have no idea. Just all of those seem so long, long from now that it's just, but I get it. I understand. That's so funny because to me that seems yeah. aggressively yeah. short to say really December. Quick. Like with my real prosecutor voice, well, I'd be why, like, yeah, October I'm not a of 2024. <laughs> I'm not a prosecutor, so I don't have that. Just as a citizen, that just makes, gives There's me There's nothing that should stand in the way. I mean, the, the, even now, I mean, the rule about not interfering with an election this doesn't interfere with an election. He's not a candidate. So go for it now. Well, yeah, but what, what if there are more documents at Bedminster and more documents uh, exactly. at Trump Tower? I just think that they have not, as, as far as we know. Amend the indictment after he goes to trial or before he goes no, to trial. No, see, I yeah, never want to supersede on key charges. I want to know just how bad it is before I indict. Because you know what? The real, the tipping point here that nobody ever talks about that we all sort of tiptoe around is what happened to the documents. Did yeah. Was he careless or was he malicious? And so if you are DOJ, you've got to figure out if there was, you know, God forbid, sales or trading or anything like that going on with these documents. And you need to know that before you charge. Today's episode is sponsored by Honey the easy way to save when shopping on your phone or computer. You know, I've used Honey. um, I've got it on my phone now, Kim. 
And I find when I buy things online, it just sort of magically appears. Of another podcast back in 2014, and that is Serial, which examined the case of the murder of Marilyn teen Heyman Lee and the conviction of Adnan Syed, her ex-boyfriend, who maintained his innocence. He spent more than 20 years in prison for her murder, but now he is a free man. So Jill, catch us up on what happened this week. Why did prosecutors decide to drop all charges against Adnan Syed? So this is a really interesting case. And back in 2014, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a podcast. I didn't listen to it. Um, I didn't know there was social media in 2014, probably. But um, it's really interesting because poor Mr. Syed has been in jail for 23 years, maintaining his innocence the entire time. And luckily, there was a, um, a innocence project that combined with this, um, the, the producer and writer and uh, lead on the serial podcast, who kept at it and came up with what was incontrovertible evidence so that the prosecutor has now said he was wrongfully convicted. They found some untested uh, DNA samples, and they found that his DNA was not on any of the samples. Well, actually, there was only one usable sample, and in that sample, there were other people. All along, there had been other suspects. But what really led to this result was that the prosecutors have been caught withholding exculpatory evidence. That's something we mentioned in our last discussion, was we don't know if there is any exculpatory evidence. Exculpatory means something that could point to a different suspect, sort of your Perry Mason moment where someone else confesses, and it's someone else who did it. And there were two real potential suspects here, one of whom, the, in the prosecutor's handwriting, the prosecutor had written down that someone had said that this other suspect, who is not named um, in current reporting, and I don't know if anybody else knows the name of that person, doesn't really matter, but that this person had said that they were basically going to disappear her just before she disappeared. And they had a motive. There was a reason for it. So that is the kind of evidence that is classic. And what was interesting in reading about this case is how often prosecutors misbehave and withhold exculpatory evidence. The law is clear that a prosecutor has an obligation under the law. The Brady case says any exculpatory material must be turned over to the defense. And in this case, I don't know whether it was because they thought they would lose if they turned it over. What their reasoning was, it doesn't matter. It's a guilty, horrible thing. I hope there will be consequences for those prosecutors who deliberately withheld this information um, and that there's no way to give back the 23 years that he has been imprisoned, but that he will be compensated under the new law um, that will allow compensation to him in, in hopefully a meaningful way. Yeah, and Barb, you know, I was really struck at the way that the current Baltimore City State's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, talked about this case. I mean, she declared Adnan Syed wrongfully convicted. Is it unusual for a prosecutor's office uh, when... It's one thing to drop charges 
um, when 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 a trial a new trial has been ordered. But it's another thing to really come out and and essentially all but declare uh, Adnan Syed innocent. And she did say that he should file a petition under this new law to be declared innocent as a former prosecutor. What did you think of that? Yeah, I think it is unusual. I think until recently, prosecutors have kind of circled the wagons and taken on the perspective of defending the prosecution, um, you know, quite vigorously. Uh, But I think there's a new trend among prosecutors who now have read about enough of these exonerations. There's been something like, you know, almost 3,000 exonerations since this national database was started in 1989. And it's you can't really ignore that anymore. And so I know that some prosecutors' offices are actually developing um, conviction integrity units. So r- rather than having, you know, like this was a law school um, innocence clinic, uh, Michigan Law School has an innocence clinic, and they have had many exonerations. Michigan Law School has had something like 27 exonerations. But I think many prosecutors' offices are now forming their own conviction integrity units so that people can uh, make requests directly to them to review convictions where they think there was a problem. And, you know, um, Jill talked about prosecutorial misconduct in these and the failure to turn over exculpatory evidence, which is an issue. But, you know, I know many prosecutors, as so as as do you all. And, you know, the last thing most of us want is to prosecute somebody who's actually innocent. Not only is it really awful to think of an innocent person sitting in prison, but that also means like the real criminal is still out there. So you have not protected public safety. So it's really in the best interest of public safety, I think, to make sure you do all the things right at the front end uh, by turning over exculpatory evidence, by thoroughly investigating, and then um, welcoming requests at the back end if you, they think you've made a mistake. So I really applaud um, Prosecutor Mosby for this openness. And you know, in addition to um, exculpatory evidence, the, some of the real big areas that we're seeing is um, eyewitness misidentification. You know, for some reason, people are really sure of what they saw. And when people say, I'm really sure of what I saw, jurors are, uh, believe that. And, um, you know, it's 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 not a perfect science. People think they saw somebody and, and you know, our minds, yeah, and our minds fill in a lot of things. Um, false confessions is another one. Um, people, especially young people, will sometimes confess to crimes because they think that, well, if I just say I did it, they'll leave me alone. I get to go home tonight. I'm like, oh, no, not guess again. And then once they've confessed, it's very difficult, I think, to take that back, you know, for a jury to hear that the person confessed. I think most of us think, who would confess to something we didn't do? But it does happen. Um, there's bad lawyering out there. Indigent defense is still um, really grossly underfunded in our country. Some states do better than others. But there's some just really shoddy lawyers who are not only not just bad lawyers, but also lawyers who are fine, but who are overextended. You know, public defenders whose dockets are just way too big to give them the kind of time they need to really handle a case. Um, unreliable informant testimony, you know, informants, snitches who get a benefit in exchange for their testimony, uh, who turn out to have been lying to get something um, of value. And then um, the last one is junk science. You know, some of these sciences that say uh, we can, uh, uh, the DOJ had a problem with this with um, hair science. They were overstating the accuracy of, you know, if I have a hair and I compare this hair that was left at the crime scene with a hair out of your head, I can tell with absolute certainty that you're the person who was there. And, you know, it turns out the science is not as precise as that. So there are a lot of reasons that contribute to these. And I think prosecutors really ought to be open um, to the concept of trying to get it right at the front end um, and being, you know, open to reviewing cases when there's allegations that they got it wrong on the back end. 
And Barbara, I want to add something that you mentioned struck me in this particular case, which is that the guilty party is still out there. And the family of the victim of this murder is very upset about his being released uh, and probably because it means that there is someone guilty who hasn't been punished. And that's something that we really need to take into account in these kinds of cases. I think that's a great point, Jill. I mean, um, this this decision has destroyed, this prosecution really destroyed the lives of two families. Um, the family of uh, Heyman Lee was already destroyed by her death. And now we have the, the Syed family who has been without their son for 23 years and justice still hasn't been done. The family, I believe, when first the uh, conviction was vacated last month, they filed an appeal to that because it was done without their, nobody notified them. They found out through the media. And what the attorney said was, we, we just wanted a seat at the table. We just wanted to be told what was going on. And I think it's really, if that is true, that is really I don't know. I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not. A, I was not. I did not do criminal law. But it seems to me that for a victim's family to not be a part of that discussion or at least be notified is pretty heinous. But but Joyce, I want to. Hey hey Kim. The, before we move on, can yeah. I just say to that point in the yeah. federal system, there's a victim witness protection act that would require the family to be looped in. Although oh, wow. I will tell you, as someone who has you know, been through that system as a, as a victim's family member following my father-in-law's death. I think sometimes it's not followed as carefully as it should be. But in the state system, you're at the mercy of state law and even of local district attorneys. This is a great practice point for local DAs, especially those who, like friend of the podcast Mimi Roca, are adopting these second look or these um, conviction integrity units to make sure that there is a really good outreach to victims' families as part of this. This is, I think, an important point that we can make here. That's a very important point. And Joyce, I want to ask you, similar to the point that Barb was making, like when I, when I first heard this, um, I thought, how in the world did Sarah Koenig and the Innocent Project at the University of Virginia do a better job than the prosecutors in this case? And I take that if you have the murder of a young girl, you're trying to investigate it, you're doing the best that you can. And it's worth noting that the DNA evidence that caused uh, state's attorney Mosby to declare him innocent was not available at the time. It's touch DNA evidence uh, that showed that essentially that Adnan was not there at the crime scene, but two other people were, or someone else was. I don't know if it's two other people Someone else was at the crime scene with Hay, plus the fact that there were two witnesses, two uh, suspects that the prosecutors at the time did not disclose to uh, the defense. But just sort of help us make this make sense. Is this is there a problem with prosecutors? Do they get too tunnel visioned or, or, or how can this happen? Yeah, well, um, you know, first off, huge shout out to Sarah and the team at my alma mater, the University of Virginia School of Law, who did this. Their work is really impeccable and it's incredibly inspiring. Um, I think when we talk about prosecutors' conduct, we need to recognize that there are some things that that prosecutors just aren't aware of at the time. Like you do a great job, Kim, of pointing out um, the issues with technology and sometimes evidence availability improves over time. And I don't think that we can fault prosecutors for not having that available. But to go back to Jill's comments, when we're talking about Brady information, which is the legal term for information that's exculpatory, 
prosecutors have a real obligation to be extremely careful. And when we assess Brady, it's not whether or not a prosecutor thinks that it might be exculpatory. It's whether or not a court, when it looks back at the trial, finds that that evidence might have helped a defendant in some way, might have tended to show that they were innocent, whether they actually get off or not. That's the standard for Brady. It's it's a look back. So it behooves prosecutors to be over-inclusive in what they disclose to defendants when they're in, in the run-up to trial. And I think, you know, this is a matter of commitment by prosecutors to doing the right thing instead of getting convictions. That's how good prosecutors operate. And that means that if you've got a handwritten note like the one in this case, you should have disclosed that, frankly, to the defense um, long before the case went to trial. Maybe should have even considered it as part of your charging decision. So good prosecutors take Brady seriously. They view it very expansively. And again, this is sort of like, you know, what we just talked about. The standards are only as good as the way they're enforced by the lead prosecutor in an office. That's easier at DOJ, where you've got one attorney general setting a nationwide standard. It can be more difficult and more controversial when you've got straight state prosecutors who in many states or in the Commonwealth are running for re-election um, over a period of time and may not want to be perceived as being soft on crime. But ultimately, this notion of Brady and exculpatory evidence is such a bright line that prosecutors really should learn from this case and be very careful to turn over evidence when it should be turned over. And in this case, uh, Adnan Syed is in Maryland, where it just so happened that recently a new law was passed, making it easier for uh, people who are wrongly convicted to get civil compensation for that wrongful conviction. It's important in many states, things like, you know, um, Barb was talking about how sometimes there are forced, coerced confessions by people who are either worn down or pressured by police to confess. But in even if they're exonerated, that can be used against them, saying that they contributed to the false conviction by uh, confessing. And it, it's really difficult sometimes to to just be made whole from this. In Maryland, it's a lot easier. It's probably one of the easiest states for that to happen because of this new law, but sort of talk about compensation and how important it is to make people whole when they have been wrongfully convicted. Anybody? Well, look, I think we have to be careful about not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I I do favor these laws being used in cases where prosecutors knowingly or intentionally violate their obligations. Um, But I think that we should be careful about assuming that that's what's always going on in in these cases. And I guess that's my take. I think if victims are entitled to compensation under the law, then I don't have any problem with them going out and obtaining that and prosecuting those cases. But I think that in most of these cases, it's not an intentional screw up by prosecutors. Here, it's very difficult because They should have done better. Very clearly, this was Brady information that should have been turned over. And I think that the appropriate result here is for the state to compensate this man for for what he endured that he should not have had to endure for all of those years. Let me just say, compensate is not ever going to happen. Just compensation. That's that's true. That's absolutely true. Is he entitled to get some compensation? Yes, absolutely. But 
he's lost 23 years of his life and he cannot get those back. So we have to do something that will punish prosecutors when it's deliberate in order to prevent someone else from having lost that much of their life. Um, but you're right, not all of these are deliberate wrongdoing by prosecutors. Some of it is, you know, juries get things wrong or that evidence is not uncovered that is later uncovered and our rules for appealing those kinds of things are really difficult. So it's challenging for someone who may have new evidence to actually get that evidence heard. And maybe we need to look at that as well. Yeah, I like the idea of compensation because it allows a remedy for the exoneree, um, but without the requirement of finding fault in the prosecutor. You may find fault in the prosecutor, but I think very often you may find that there was a false confession or there was an informant who lied or there was a bad eyewitness identification or something like that. And you wouldn't want to leave the exoneree you know, left out of compensation just because there's no one right. to blame and there's no one at fault. They lost years of their life. Uh, and as you say, Jill, you, you can never get it back, but there should be some compensation there in an effort to do you know, the, the next best thing to make them whole, which is to, to give them some money damages. And also I think it serves as a check on the system and a deterrent uh, for prosecutors perhaps to be more careful to avoid that kind of thing from happening. Though you would think that just putting someone in prison would be enough of a nightmare to uh, be a check on prosecu prosecutors' negligence. Glad that the law has been improved in Maryland so that it will help in this particular case. Hey, Kim, I'm reaching the point in my teaching semester where, and I'm sure my students would hate to hear that I'm stressed out because I know they are, but you know, I have to give a midterm exam. I'm looking ahead mm -hmm. to finals. It's, it's a lot. Do you have any advice? So in the future, if you have a question for us, please email at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, Keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we often answer questions that you sent in that we didn't have time to answer in the show. This week, we're going to start with you, Joyce, a question from Katie. What does collateral appeal mean? Is it a technical term? It is a technical term, and it's a great question. In criminal cases, defendants, and I'll talk about the federal system, although this is true in the state system as well, but in the federal system, defendants are entitled to take an appeal after they're convicted. They can go to one of the courts of appeals. For, for me, out of my old office, that would have been the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And they can even try to get the Supreme Court to hear their cases. The Supreme Court doesn't have to, but they can apply for certiorari. And if the court thinks that the issues are important enough, then the Supreme Court might ultimately decide that case. If defendants lose in one or more of those stages and their conviction is affirmed, they're not completely out of options. They can still take what's called a collateral appeal. This is usually under a section of the law called 28 U.S.C. 2255, where the defendant says to the court, I was denied due process or something illegal happened during the prosecution of my case, and so I'd like you to take a second look. 
Those appeals are more strictly constrained. Defendants have a much shorter period of time during which they can take a collateral appeal, and, and courts will only review for really extraordinary situations that are tantamount to, to a miscarriage of justice. But that's a collateral appeal, and it's a, a different route that a defendant can take after trial. Great answer. Thank you, Joyce. And from Kelly in Louisville, Kim, would you tell her what is the process for deciding which cases are heard at the Supreme Court? Does the Chief Justice decide or do they vote? Oh, this is a great, great question. I get to put my wonky hat on. So when we're talking about merits cases, which we've we've talked about, this, those are cases that briefs are submitted and there's arguments before the court. And in most cases, there is an opinion that is delivered, uh, you know, signed by the justices and, and which give out the reasoning. There are two ways that that cases can be taken up. One is where the court has original jurisdiction. This is a very, very small number of cases, and it usually involves disputes between two states. You know, two states want to figure out what water rights they have between them. Um, That case goes automatically to the U.S. Supreme Court to decide. But the vast majority of cases are taken up when someone files, a party files, something called a writ of certiorari. And what that means is they had a decision in a lower court that they lost and they are asking the court, the Supreme Court, to review it. Only a tiny number of petitions uh, for certiorari are granted. Usually ends up being between 60 and 70 cases a year. And the Chief Justice alone does not decide. It takes four votes for, from members of the court to decide to take up a case. And the chief justice doesn't even have to be among those four uh, to take up a case. And of course, we know in the decision, it takes five uh, to make a ruling or a majority. So if there's if, if a couple of people are recused, then it can take four to make a re- majority and so forth. Uh, but it only takes four justices, not even the majority, to decide to put a case on the docket. Glad you mentioned that it takes only four and five to decide it. Um, Our last question comes from Logan in Toledo. Can you explain why the jury did not impose the death penalty in the Parkland sentencing? Uh, And Barb, do you want to take that question? Yeah, you know, of course, we, we can't know all the reasons that members of the jury might have considered or what might have been important to them. But you know, they're not just deciding, was this crime a bad crime? Um, it, it is something that they have to decide based on mitigating and aggravating factors. So the prosecution points to aggravating factors like, you know, the use of the weapon, the number of people involved, the violent nature of the crime, a mass shooting. You know, they cite aggravating factors that make this more than a routine murder case. Um, but then the defense also puts on mitigating factors. Things like, um, I know there was evidence about um, his childhood development, about having fetal alcohol syndrome, about um, emotional disabilities and intellectual disabilities. And so when the jury weighs those things, um, it must consider them in deciding whether to impose the death penalty. Now, no doubt this was a horrific crime and they heard horrible, horrible evidence about you know, from the families of what they lost in terms of these children, high school kids. Um, 
But I, I have seen this happen. I, I actually presided over as U.S. attorney um, a case involving the death penalty where the jury was very quick to convict the defendant uh, but did not want to impose death. And I think it's really hard. You know, you might say you favor the death penalty in certain cases. And to, to be on a jury, you have to say you're open to it. But to actually say, yes, I want, you know, this person should die as a result of it, I think it's a really hard question. I also have a theory that in a case like this where you hear about parents who are really suffering over the loss of their child, there's got to be a part of you that says, I don't want one more parent to have to suffer over the loss of their child. And putting this uh, killer to death would certainly cause that kind of anguish to another family. You know, and then there are all, always the administrative things like he becomes a martyr and, um, you know, there will be inevitable appeals that go on for years and years and decades. Uh, and so now you can have finality and it's over. So I don't know all the reasons, but that's the process that a jury goes through when it's considering imposing the death penalty. And I think you also have to take into account the wrongful convictions that may happen. What if the Adnan Syed had been sentenced to death and it had been carried out and then he was exonerated? I, it wasn't, you know, didn't happen, but those, the number of wrongful convictions makes you think twice about ever imposing the death penalty. At least it does me. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Jill Wine Banks. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea, or now that it's fall, our hoodie and all the other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Olive and June, Helix, Honey, and Calm. You can find their links in the show notes Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. Doorbell? I love that. <laughs> oh, that's like perfectly in line with the chit chat. <laughs> Mehdi Hassan. Hi, Brisby. Brisby's like I Adnan we was don't innocent. I knew he was. <laughs> <laughs> Brisby, dog for justice. <laughs> He's a cape. I physically <laughs> restrained him. His timing is impeccable. Yes. He's such a good doggy. Well, at least I wasn't talking. I mean, you could mute me. Yeah, it, it was too much not to laugh. Yeah, it got to be too much. I couldn't. I couldn't follow my own train of thought. <laughs> I should have just started barking along or howling. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till the landline rings and he howls like a wolf. Oh, that is the most. It's like. It's his cue to, I don't know how he learned what a wolf sounds like, but he does. <laughs>